2: Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. My name is Evan Ratliff. I'm one of your three co-hosts. Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer are the other two. Hello, guys. Hey. What a pleasure to
3: be here with you both.
2: Indeed. Who's on the program this week? <laughs> this week, I spoke to Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kong. They are both reporters at the New York Times. Shira is based in San Francisco. Cecilia is based in Washington, D.C. They are Also, the co-authors of the book An Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination, which just came out pretty recently. It's basically an investigative account of the goings on at Facebook, largely sort of between the 2016 and 2020 elections, encompassing both.
0: My understanding is that it's a very flattering portrayal of
2: Facebook. Max, you're going to have to read the book to find out the answer to that. <laughs> I think you'll get, a, you'll get a feeling from this interview. I mean, they're exceptional, exceptional reporters. And a lot of what I wanted to talk to them about was sort of how they got inside this company that is notoriously protective of its image, how they managed to get so much new information on something that has been reported to death and everyone feels like they know about, and also how they wrote a book together and still seem to remain friends. The one other thing I'll just add just to get people oriented is in terms of who is who, mostly you can tell, we try to use the names, but Shira takes the first question here.
0: And that smooth, honey-ish voice is Evan Ratliff, the (laughs) co-host of this podcast. Hey, speaking of this podcast, as of last week, it's produced in partnership with Vox. Hey, all right. Thanks, Vox. Now here is Evan Ratliff with Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kong.
2: Shira and Cecilia, welcome to the Longform Podcast.
3: Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.
2: It's great to have you. And the book is fantastic. People should obviously go read it. I think this interview will make more sense to them if they do, but not everyone will. So I do want to kind of frame the book a little bit for people who might not have read it yet. The title comes from this quote, and I know you've both talked about this a lot, But the quote is kind of incredible and where it comes from and what it says. And so maybe you could describe that and how that is the sort of fundamental subject matter of the book in some way.
4: It came from this memo that was written by a Facebook executive, and his name is Andrew Bosworth. He commonly goes by Boz, and the name of the memo is The Ugly, and the idea being that he's kind of defending this idea that Facebook might break a few eggs along its way towards connecting the world and making it a better place. I think the quote you reference is, is this one part of it where he says, you know, maybe people get bullied, maybe somebody loses their life, like maybe something really awful happens. But ultimately, there is this good that we're doing on our platform. And it just speaks to not just the mentality of Facebook executives, but the risk that they've essentially decided to take as they grew their company to the biggest social media platform in the world.
2: And the book is kind of tracing those risks that they decided to take and and how they went wrong in different ways and then how they reacted to it and i want to kind of both talk about how you reported it how you pulled that information out of the company and also how the two of you sort of sat down to write this book and construct it but first i want to start back a little bit with each of you and talk about how facebook became part of your beat So maybe, Cecilia, you could start. I mean, you've covered technology in the past for a long time, government regulation. Did you notice a time when Facebook actually became a big part of your reporting? Was there a moment or did it happen gradually?
3: In our reporting and research, I look back at my first interview with the company and Mark Zuckerberg, and that was actually in 2010, a very, very long time ago and a very different time when not just in Silicon Valley was there this sort of techno utopianism, this idea that technology could be such a great panacea for so many problems in the world, but also in Washington, there was this idea that technology could really bring the economy and businesses back to life out of the recession of 2007 and 2008. It was actually after, sorry, I should say the tail end of the Obama administration, and really during the election of 2016, the presidential election, when the site was really tested. And that's why we decided to focus on this period of one election to the other, 2016 and 2020, because all of the problems that were systemic and embedded in the design of the site and in the business model really came to the surface. And it was because Trump actually tested a lot of these things and helped surface a lot of the problems. At the same time, what was happening in tandem was Washington was beginning to notice that not only were there problems with this sort of adopted idea that everybody had here in government, that technology could be so great, but that it could also be problematic. And so it was like this really sort of radical change of opinion. People thought of the companies less as just economic engines for growth, but they thought of themselves, regulators, thought of themselves as important figures, finally, I would say, in actually overseeing this industry that had been unregulated for so long.
0: Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah, it's funny, Cecilia. I was just listening to that and thinking how I came to Facebook around a similar time. I don't think I've ever made that connection. I was a foreign correspondent and I was in the Middle East. And it was during the Arab uprisings of 2011 that I went from thinking about Facebook as this quirky app that I downloaded as a college student and used occasionally to keep in touch with friends to something that had geopolitical ramifications. I was in Tahrir Square when people held up signs saying, thank you, Mark Zuckerberg. And so I experienced that techno utopia firsthand in Cairo. And then the aftermath of that, just a few years later, when the Egyptian military cracked down on any forms of dissent, beginning, I would say, with LGBTQ activists and arresting them based on their involvement in Facebook groups and pages that I realized, oh, what an interesting and dark flip side. What a surveillance tool this has become for despotic governments. And so I started thinking about Facebook in that way. And then traveling to Myanmar in 2015, I obviously saw an incredibly dark side to what Facebook could do in a country. And it was only then that I moved back to America and, um, in 2015 and found myself here in, in the Bay Area confronting Facebook firsthand and saying, well, this is what I've seen in other parts of the world. I'm really concerned about what Facebook is doing there. And at the time, they kept saying, well, those are test cases and they're small, but that kind of thing isn't going to happen here. And then obviously, as we know, the 2016 elections happened and Facebook was manipulated and used to influence Americans in the same way that it was used to influence people in other countries. So I felt like I kind of had this moment where I came into it already thinking I've seen the worst case scenario and it's maybe a matter of time before it happens here in the U.S. Although I will say I will step back a minute and say that that I certainly did not predict it was going to happen in 2016. I didn't think it was going to happen so quickly in America the way it had happened in other countries.
2: Did you find reporting on Facebook changed over that time as in? did it become harder to do the reporting or easier to do the reporting as that sort of perception shifted?
3: Oh yeah, I would say from my perspective in Washington, I think once the sort of beat reporting of Facebook turned toward accountability, it absolutely changed. The company was always very approachable when it came to, the company be able to describe and to actually spread more of the image that it wanted to project, which is that, you know, use all these euphemisms like we want to connect the world. We want to you know bring the world closer through communications. We want to make it more open. And these are all sort of euphemisms for like their real strategy, which is growth. You know, it's a business. And then I think when people started to, including ourselves and so many other great reporters, started to really try to open the curtain and just understand how the machinery worked at Facebook, then things changed. And when we started to try to pick apart that messaging, then it became really hard to access people through the front door. And what happened as a result is we just had to work so much harder to get people On our own, you know, and that's something that's been really rewarding is that most of the sources in our book, we spoke to more than 400 people, and the vast majority of those people are employees, many currently still there. Um, They just wanted to talk to us, and it was hard. We had to try to convince them to talk to us, but it became harder and harder to get what we needed from the company. And, And actually, they would tell us things that we found out were just outright false, you know, we would get sort of the runaround over and over again. And we can go into that as well. But um, <laughs> it did become harder and it became more investigatory.
4: Yeah. You know, Cecilia has been honestly been doing this longer than I have. I don't think I tried to develop sources in Facebook until I moved here. In realistically, like 2016 is when I first tried to develop sources. But that was an interesting time because I feel like it was when the company was seeing a lot of internal dissent among their own ranks engineers were upset about what they were seeing on the news feed about the company not dealing with at that point they thought of them as macedonian sites and you know sites that were run for profit and spreading false news and so i was speaking to a tech reporter last week who has been covering silicon valley for decades and he kind of laughed and he was like oh you don't know what it was like you know <laughs> in the early 2000 you know in 2010 it was really hard to get a facebook employee to talk to you that might be the case. Although, again, like I, I covered like, you know, monarchies and autocratic regimes for my early part of my career. So I was used to trying to get people to talk to me from inside regimes where they don't want people talking to reporters. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just because I'm not calling Facebook an autocratic regime. <laughs> I'm just saying that was my experience as a reporter. And so maybe it didn't strike me as weird that I had mm-hmm. to call up 30 people before one was going to talk to me or a door knock on 20 houses before one person was willing to open the door and chat. Like that wasn't unique or weird to me that that was the process of finding sources.
2: Yeah. I I just want to point out that uh, on my list of questions I had, (laughs) Shira, you reported the Middle East for many years. (laughs) Was there anything from that experience that felt like it specifically applied to, (laughs) to reporting on Facebook? But I'm interested to whatever extent you can talk a little bit about the techniques of developing those sources and how much of it is targeting people who you think might be willing to talk versus a sort of scattershot approach of just trying a lot of people and knowing a lot of people will tell you to F off or they come to you? Like what's the mix there and how you found these 400 people?
3: I mean, I think it's definitely a mix. There's a lot of throwing the whole pot of spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks for sure. And just like any sort of beat reporting where you're trying to, and especially in this book where you were trying to nail down really dozens and dozens of scenes. It's like we would get one toe through, you know, the crack of a door on one scene. And then we'd find out, okay, who else was in the room? It should be said that Shira and I, we talked to each other more perhaps than even some of our family members at time. We were constantly, <laughs> yeah. constantly talking and strategizing, constantly right. just like messaging each other, emailing, talking on the phone of, okay, in this meeting, we know that these sources you can probably track down and I can track down those sources and let's just like meet up again to see what we find. And we go further and further. I mean, sometimes Shira, we would, I'm just thinking about like the wartime leader scene, for example. Oh, man. Oh, my God. It was like so much brainstorming, so much who was in the room and that was a good target because there was more than a dozen people in the room like who can we get who can we get to vouch for us to get to that person how can we get in and a lot of it also in getting people to talk to us has to do with their trust in us so I think we were writing this book at a good time because we had established some trust with a lot of our sources and our beat reporting at the times. And so they felt good about talking to us and they knew that we would really respect whatever terms that they set for us if they wanted to be anonymous and to protect that. And they also knew that we wouldn't be irresponsible and say, well, you know, to another source, so, so, and so told me to talk to you. I mean, they just knew what level of sort of the approach that we take to reporting. Sometimes when we nail down a really important interview, we would strategize on what kind of questions we should really focus on if we only had 20 minutes or even just 10 minutes. We did like going to people's houses. There's one point we went down to. We went down to North Carolina and really surprised a board member (laughs) and just uh, showed up at his doorstep. Did that work? Yes, it did. I flew down to North Carolina to meet with Erskine Bowles and I had a letter prepared in an envelope in case he wasn't there And he was there. I just caught him, luckily, because he was about to take off, I think, for his summer home. And
2: he's a board member who also had a political profile before being a Facebook board member. He's a very, very well-known guy.
3: Very well-known guy. He worked in the Clinton administration. He's very well-known in politics and a very respected member on the board of directors. So we wanted to find out what was the board thinking about all these things. So we went down there and um, we caught him. And he just, he's so polite and said, you know, look... This is just not the way I operate. You know, I need to talk to other members at Facebook to find out if it's okay for me to talk to you. And so I said, we understand, Mr. Bowles. Here's the letter. You can read my letter and the intents of, you know, what the story, what we're trying to pursue and why I'm here. And it worked in that he immediately let Facebook know that we had showed up and Facebook called and yelled at Shira (laughs) because I had shown up there. A Facebook comms person said, why did you just try to go through us? And we said, you know, we tried and you just, you know, you don't give us access to these people. So we have to do this. And so I mentioned that anecdote because we were able to use reporting eventually to talk to Erskine Bowles. He spoke to us by phone for a New York Times story as well as for the book.
4: I was nodding very heavily as Cecilia spoke, which people obviously can't see, but I had a journalism professor early on who told me that there are two types of reporters. There are reporters who date and reporters who marry. And I think that Cecilia and I are both reporters who marry our sources. And by that, I mean, they're lifelong sources. I think both of us have people we've spoken to for over a decade. It's not a relationship that you build quickly. It's one where you really have to let them get to know you as a journalist, show them that you're always gonna be honest and do what you say and protect their anonymity And that you're not biased right like i think some reporters make mistakes and that they try to curry favor with sources by writing things they think the sources will like and i think sources actually respect you more when you show them like no i'm accurate and i'm honest and i'm objective and i'm actually going to check what you tell me so that i know it's true and so you know that i'm doing my homework on everything and so, yeah, I, I when I started the Facebook beat, I had zero sources <laughs> I um, in 2016. I think I knew a handful of people that worked there and they were all cybersecurity folks. I also was a new mom, so I spent a lot of time taking my four month old baby down to the Starbucks around the corner from Facebook and just literally sitting in the Starbucks and asking everybody who walked in if they worked at Facebook and then giving them my card. And Incredible. I think they all thought I was crazy, but one out of 50 worked. And that's more sources than I had at the start of the day. So that was great. And yeah, I still talk to a lot of those people, to be honest with you. So yeah, I I think for anyone listening who thinks about how reporters build sources, you should know that a lot of it is deep trust over time and not just burning them on a single scoop or a single idea, but saying like, I want to understand this company. I want to understand how they work. I have two people that have told me something from a meeting, but I'm not going to tell you what they told me because that's going to bias you. Instead, I want you to tell me. So I had a lot of sources who would say to me things like, oh, well, tell me what you heard and I'll confirm it. And I would always say, no, I don't want that because you might lie to me. You might confirm what somebody else said. And I want to hear it from you independently because then I don't think three people who don't know each other are secretly conspiring to tell me something that's untrue. If you all Mm -hmm. three of you tell me that Mark Zuckerberg was wearing a red sweater, then I probably know he was wearing a red sweater. That type of reporting, I think, was really important to Cecilia and I. We were really on the same page about that about wanting to write a book that was ironclad and that Facebook, Mm -hmm. when we brought it to them for fact-checking, because we did bring this entire book to Facebook for fact-checking, they couldn't challenge us on the facts because we had spent so much time reporting out these details.
2: You mentioned in there protecting their anonymity. And I want to talk about anonymity a little bit. My experience reporting when I've deployed a lot of anonymity is that people, when they look at it from the outside, they think it's very straightforward. You make someone anonymous or not, but there's actually this incredibly wide range of approaches to doing that. And also understandings of it from sources. Like some sources will just say, oh, don't screw me. But this sort of on the record, <laughs> off the record, whatever. Like, yeah. And I'm curious to yeah. what extent you try to put it on yourselves versus them that they remain anonymous. And what I mean by that is like, they could tell you something that other people could then identify them and they could get fired but you don't necessarily know what those things are. And I'm interested how you grapple with that challenge.
3: I think every source that we talk to has their own situation. Absolutely. And I'm sure if people were to do some forensics, like some really deep forensics on each of the scenes, they might be able to figure some of that stuff out. On the one hand, most of the sources we talk to are very sophisticated. They're pretty high level and they're used to talking to the press. And that's an important point. When it comes to just a person on the street or somebody who is not accustomed to talking to media and and reporters, we both are very, very careful. A little bit more kid glove treatment with those people because we want to make sure they understand. And we do this in our New York Times stories as well. You do know that this is going to be public. You may get a response. I just want you to be prepared that you understand what this will entail by participating and talking, going on the record. So I think every source we handle differently We both err on the side of going on the record, always. So it's always starting a meeting saying, let's just talk, but you should know that this will land in some way or another, in some shape or form in the book. And so knowing that, how do you want to proceed is sort of the conversation you have going into a source you know, terms discussion is what we call it. You know, yeah. like let's set the terms of this discussion. And we also want to be really, really clear when people say, let's talk on background. Is your thinking of background the same as my thinking of background? I think Shira yeah. and I have a very specific, yeah. you know, idea of what on background means and on deep background, off the record, and on the record. And again, I think that we very much skew towards much more on the record and you know, and, and more on the background and on the record than off the record for sure. Because be off the record is useless to us because it's, you know, you can't use it in any shape or form. Shira, did you want to add something?
4: Well... I would just say that a lot of first time sources, these are people I'm just getting coffee with for the first time. I will usually offer to start off record just to get them comfortable in knowing me and to understand things about their job. And I'll say to them, you have the safety and security right now speaking to me off record. I can't use anything you're telling me, you know, not even I can't take any of it and even go to another source and try and confirm it because it's that off record. Right. And a lot of them, I find that once they do that with me once and they see, oh, wow, she didn't write about it. She kept her word. She didn't publish anything based on that coffee. That goes such a long way towards building trust that I can't tell you how many sources have come back to me afterwards and said, oh, I can put that on background. I'm actually okay putting all of it on background. And then, yeah, it's about building them towards on record if we can. Obviously, in this book, not many people could go on record because... They either signed NDAs and they were violating their NDAs by speaking to us, or they still worked in Silicon Valley, they still worked at Facebook and didn't wanna lose their jobs. And so we had to do a lot of things on background and just to define that, that means we could say that they were a Facebook engineer or that they were executives at Facebook, but we couldn't give any more specificity than that. And then I think I do a lot of handholding in terms of the technology and how what's a safe way to speak to us. You know, Download signal, here's our ProtonMail email addresses, this is safe. I tell people, and obviously most Facebook engineers know this, but don't look me up on Facebook. Don't look me up on Instagram, not even like a casual typing of my name to see where my page is, because Facebook will see that immediately and it will be a red flag in your file. Don't follow me on Twitter, right? Like these are very basic things that I run through. Most of them know it, but it's a good reminder to them that Facebook is very actively and aggressively looking for who leaks to journalists.
3: One thing I want to add is the higher you go as well, I think our standards are higher as well, in the sense that, you know, we weren't willing to just talk to Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg off the record forever. And so we wanted, in our author's note, for folks to understand that there was an effort to reach the highest levels they weren't willing to go on the record which is the only way we were willing to talk to them and that we do hold higher standards to the highest executives
0: In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com.
5: Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community-building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
2: Just going back to... The idea of how they can contact you. That was the sort of the second side of the anonymity, which is you have a whole chapter in the book called The Rat Catcher, which is about a Facebook employee, lawyer, I think, whose job is to ferret out people who are leaking to the press. And so were you concerned about how far they would go to figure out what you were doing, what reporting you were doing, how they would be looking into you?
4: Yeah, definitely. Cecilia and I had conversations before the book published. That was literally what's the worst thing they can say about us? If they dug into our past, if they dug into our lives, like what what is the worst thing they could find? I think luckily we're pretty boring people. <laughs> um, so we couldn't think of much. But, you know, I think Facebook is, well, now a trillion dollar company, which a lot of its ability to continue to grow and, and gain new users is based on PR and messaging and public perception. And so a book that is critical of Facebook, an article that is critical of Facebook is damaging to them. And so we knew they were not happy about the book coming out and it being a book they couldn't control. Specifically, I think they were upset that two women were writing this book. I think that made it slightly more difficult for them to rely on some of the messaging they had used in the past to dismiss things that were critical of the company. And so, for instance, when we were writing this book, we didn't have Facebook on our phones. We didn't have the apps on our phones. We didn't take our phones to meetings with sources. We worked in documents that were encrypted and had passwords. Like we, we took every precaution we could. Well, I will say with all of that, Facebook did still manage to get the book just before its publication, which we we expected. And I think we did pretty well. I think they got it, what, Cecilia, like four days, five days before. Yeah. So we were happy. We were we were really worried it was going to somehow get to them months before publication. We also just told ourselves that this was a worthwhile journalistic enterprise and that even if they tried to attack us personally, we felt we could really strongly stand behind our work.
2: And there's scenes in the book where you write a time story about something happening internally at Facebook, and then you have the scene of them reacting in fury to the (laughs) story that has just been published, which is, it's absolutely (laughs) fascinating to read because it must just be so infuriating that then they are now reading the scene of them reacting to it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But did you ever feel like you're getting caught up in kind of like a back and forth, like, war with them and their comms people. And it's it's almost like a distraction from the reporting. I just wondered how much like space that takes up in your brain that you're in this kind of like cat and mouse game or like cat and rat game, I guess, if you pick the rat catcher, you know, with them.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Those particular scenes illustrated something important, which was how they react to negative Public perception, what, how they react to news stories that are that are critical or hard, and because that's part of the Facebook story, is it's so important for them to control their image, and there is so much internal sort of. Um, indignance when things don't go their way. And that's one of the problems. It's really hard for especially the top leadership to accept that potentially there needs to be a little bit more introspection and, and a reaction that's a little bit more wholehearted, not just, just a dismissal that the media is out to get us. It, it was sort of a weird meta thing though, to be like reporting on the reaction to our reporting, <laughs> for sure, yeah. for sure. But it's it also showed, you know, for us, like. We didn't even seek that. People within were calling us and saying, you won't even effing believe the way that they reacted to your story. You know, you should know this because we're infuriated that Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and et cetera, et cetera, these other executives are reacting this way and blaming you guys as opposed to trying to fix the problem with data security and data privacy.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cecilia, I'm thinking of one particular moment. This has to do with Russian election interference and the white paper, the security paper that Facebook published. So as a reporter for The Times, when Facebook came out with a white paper in 2017, in March of 2017, where it kind of listed these are all our security concerns, this is what we think about as a company, myself and other reporters had heard a rumor that there was a version of that paper that had a whole section on Russia and basically acknowledged that Russia had used Facebook to interfere in the elections and that that section had been taken out. So I called Facebook to confirm this, and I was told that is categorically false. Russia was never in the paper. We don't know what you're talking about. And it was such a strong denial that I backed down, because it's rare as a reporter you get such a strong denial from a company. And my source wasn't you know, was 100% sure about what was in and what was out, so I left it. And then I did reporting for the book and spoke to a number of sources who said, no, no, that, that Russia section, that was 100% in there. It was in there for several drafts. We saw it with our own eyes, et cetera. And then I remember when I went to Facebook with it, and again, I got a denial. And so again, I went to my sources and I had a source physically show me a draft, several drafts actually, with Russia there. So then I get to call back Facebook and say, okay, now I've seen it with my own eyes. And I get this really weird, I mean, I should weird as me being generous here, but it's actually quite typical of Facebook where they go, well, that wasn't a draft, that was a revision. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Are we in England? We're doing revisions now. Um, Sorry, I have a British husband, so I can say that. Um, It was a draft. It was a draft of the paper. It had a section on Russia. I asked you, you denied it several times, and now I've seen it with my own eyes. You can't deny it anymore. And then we get into this lengthy conversation about what a revision is versus a draft and what they count as a draft. Facebook is a master at doing this. Every reporter that has worked with them has experienced this. Well, they'll tell you something isn't true based on like some small nuance that they understand and you don't, or they've named differently than you've named. And it's endlessly frustrating as a reporter. You basically had to have all your receipts in hand when you go to them because they're extremely difficult to corner on stuff like that. Mm.
2: One more on the reporting front. So I want to go back to Sheryl Sandberg, Mark Zuckerberg. You didn't get either one of them to talk to you on the record for the book, like to sit down for an interview and talk through all of these issues, how they had responded to it, your reporting, et cetera. But the book is in part a profile of these two people and of their partnership. And so how does it feel to try to do that? And how frustrating is it to not have that person ever sit down and talk to you and say, like, look, I'm just going to give you my perception of these same scenes and these same events?
3: I think, and I should back up and say that we had no sense that Mark Zuckerberg was ever interested in talking to us. So we knew from the start that that would be a challenge. Uh, With Sheryl Sandberg, we were sort of given the promise that she would talk to us. We were not more than sort of. We were given the promise that she would talk to us after a few get to know you meetings. And so we expected something different there. I think it motivated us more. We were so motivated for Mark to go beyond what's already been written about him, which is a lot. And he famously doesn't care about participating in interviews and or he handpicks what kind of interviews he participates in. And Cheryl was really... We were very motivated to show who she was because she was less known and less understood. And we knew that her role was so vitally important for the public to understand because she created the business model. And what we've discovered in our reporting was that actually their relationship was very important to understand, to understand the Facebook story. Because in 2008, when they first met and Sheryl Sandberg joined, it was a complete meeting and joining of two very different talents. One- the technology and the vision for technology, and the other, the creation of revenue, the monetization, the business model. But they worked so importantly in tandem to create what Facebook is today. And so understanding who they were and how they had this joint vision and joint mission together and joint project that would benefit them both differently as individuals, but in many ways that that would tie both of them to the identity of Facebook and to the legacy of Facebook was really just incredibly motivational for us Mm -hmm. yeah i'm just thinking of all the things that were told to us
4: by people like i now know whether or not they're good at kayaking and (laughs) canoeing and you know people enjoy telling you random details like that about them but you know you sit with this mountain of material that you've been given about individuals who you know i think we can all agree these are among the most powerful individuals really in the world the technology they sit upon affects over three billion people across the world and you look at all you've accumulated and you say, okay, what have I learned about them that will tell readers something important or useful about how they make decisions as a leader, about how they relate to one another, about how they think about the world and critical issues like free speech. And then we sift through all that. And we say, these are the details about them that's important, right? We're not trying to write some tabloid book and tell you like the craziest thing we heard about Mark and Cheryl. What we're trying to do is create a picture of who they are as leaders and what motivates their decision making. And I think that's what readers got in our book.
2: Well, let's talk about a different partnership, which is your partnership. I can see that you, <laughs> you're you even willing to do this together. So you've already answered the question of whether you <laughs> wanna kill each other. Like it seems like you're still, still friendly. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did it come about that you were both gonna write the book together? <laughs>
4: It was natural, I think, Cecilia. Um, it's funny. I mean, I'm, I'm going to speak for myself here, but I never would have done it without Cecilia. So we did an article in 2018 called Delay, Deny, Deflect. For anyone listening um, who hasn't read it, I think it came out, Cecilia, what, November 2018? November
3: 2018, yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: And it was, I think, the first real sort of investigation into what Facebook knew during Russia's election interference and and why they didn't go public with it. And it worked so well because I was out here in California and Cecilia was in D.C. And our sources were different and their motivations for speaking were different. We were able to source things in a really different way. And um, we really just enjoyed working with each other on that article. And so after that article, when we were approached by agents who thought that it would make a good book... I've never done a book before, neither Cecilia. And it just felt so much better to be going into it with someone who I knew was just an incredibly strong reporter, a strong writer, a strong thinker, that it made it seem feasible to do a book.
3: It was so natural. And, and I will say that we, can, we went into it with a, a very faint idea of what a book project would entail. I remember saying, and I, I said this, I'll own up to this, I said something to Shira, like, we have so much that's on the cutting room floor from that story. It'll be a breeze. You know, Shira, if, if I may say this Shira was pregnant at the time with her second. I have kids in middle school and one in high school at the time. And we were both just like super busy moms trying to do all this together. And this is like before the pandemic, obviously. But, um, and we just thought, oh, it's just going to be, you know, let's just put together everything that didn't make it into the story. It'll, it'll work out fine. And um I think our relationship has remained intact and even more than intact. My, my family has adopted Shira. They think of her as the, the fifth daughter because I think we just respect each other's skills and talents and each other so much. And I mean, I, Shira is the most indefatigable reporter you'll ever meet. She will squeeze water out of a rock. I mean, whatever cliche you want to use, she'll get it and get it. And also Think really critically. And I do think this comes from your reporting in the Middle East era. You're so skeptical of what you hear the first time, especially from a company. You're like, uh, let's check that with like 12 other people, that kind of a thing. And I I think that that was something that I learned from from her. So, yeah, I mean. Cecilia
4: is making me blush. (laughs) You're making me blush. I'm glad this is a podcast.
2: (laughs) But how do you literally write like, do you do same Google Doc, writing and writing at the same yeah. time? Or is it like mm-hmm. one person composes something, sends it to the other, you, and then you send it back?
4: So I think, again, this is why it works, is that I don't even think we had to think twice. It took us like five minutes to figure out who was writing which chapter, taking, yeah. I should say, the first pass at each chapter. Because, you know, Cecilia just has more history with the company. She's based in Washington. All the policy stuff, all the great scenes of lawmakers, like that was just in her notebooks, in her head she could sit and easily write through a lot of that stuff very quickly. Whereas for me, it was really obvious, like the Russia stuff. So there were some chapters that were really clean like that. Like Cecilia would write the first version. She would even note for me, like, put your thing here about this, put this one section here. And then I would do the same. And then there were other chapters we worked on together that were more of a 50-50 split. But again, at that point, we had written so much that it was like clip notes. Like I would write Cecilia, good source here, weird source there. Like (laughs) when she knew what I was talking about. Also, I will just take a minute to compliment Cecilia. She much more than I spent time thinking about the structure of each chapter. Like what was going to be the driving argument in this chapter? What was going to be the theme that carried the reader through this chapter that felt differently than the last one? And so I was often writing through one chapter and then she would already be like, okay, here's like, the main theme, the driving structure, the point we're gonna—she already had all that ready to go for the next chapter, and so it made it so easy as you know her co-author to go into that, being like, okay, so every point I'm making is driving readers towards the central idea we want them to carry out of this chapter.
3: And I mean, the the fact of the matter is, is that every chapter went through countless drafts. So we were both, our hands were in it, like both of us on all the words, and so. The problems for us, the challenges, I should say, were less about how we work together, but more about just figuring out oftentimes what the story was when it was unfolding real time. Like Facebook mm-hmm. was constantly in the news and we we're just figuring, well, do we include this or do we not? Like, How does this hold up to like our theme? Do we feel like this is going to take readers in a totally different direction? And the other challenge we had was we wanted to keep it really taut, you know? So how do you make it narratively interesting as well as thematically rich and being disciplined enough to say, okay, I got this amazing scene. It took me three weeks to get reporting on it. But, you know, I would say to Shira or she would say (laughs) to me, like, I'm sorry, we're going to have to sacrifice that baby, that kind of a thing. Those are the hard things.
4: I think it helped that we both just didn't have a big ego about it, to be honest. I think as reporters, maybe that's why we like working with each other. Neither one of us has a big ego. I mean, it hurts when you have to to kill one of those babies, but um, you know that you have enough trust in your co-author to know, like, okay, she knows what she's doing. I'm not objective about this because I spent a month getting that one detail. But if she's telling me the book is stronger without it, I'm going to go with that.
2: You picked this narrative structure, election to election, as you mentioned, when you hit the 2020 election, like election day, did you think, fantastic, let's wrap (laughs) this up and then just-
4: (laughs) So I would say that when we pitched the book, when we sold the book, we had this idea that we would end before 2020. Um, And I did that kind of, I think I was already thinking like 2020 could be a shit show. So it'd be nice if the book was published before then because, and I remember even saying in meetings, if we wait and publish close to 2020, November, 2020, we're going to have to include months after the election because it's not going to be resolved quickly. I said that way back in 2018. I was like, it's going to be a problem. Facebook's involvement is going to be a problem. There's going to be Americans that are spreading misinformation to other Americans. It's going to be a gray area and Facebook will take a while to get their hands around it. And so there isn't a possibility of publishing, let's say, like October or even January 2020. I said even back then, like it might take until January 2021 for us to exactly know what Facebook's role in all this. was. I'm, I'm not, by the way, I I, I don't think I'm a, pro- I just think I knew enough about misinformation on Facebook to knew it was going to be a problem.
3: I can vouch for her. She did <laughs> say that. Yes.
4: <laughs> so yes, I would say when we pitched it, they originally loved the idea of coming out before the 20, well before the 2020 elections. And as we got closer, it became clear that wasn't going to happen, that it was going to be too important and too consequential. And that Facebook was going to have to make some really big calls on president Trump for one thing. And so I can't remember when, but I'd say maybe a year, a little close to a year before the elections, a decision was made that we were going to incorporate what happened in November. And then when January 6th happened, when rioters stormed the Capitol, that was such a clear moment of challenge for Facebook that I remember we called each other when we were both off deadline. We called each other that night and we said, yeah, the book's going to end sometime around here, right? Like, this is going to be a big closing moment in the book, this real challenge to democracy that partially happens because of misinformation that was spread on Facebook.
2: I wanted to talk just for a second about First Amendment and free speech stuff, which comes up in the book. And I feel like now there's become this sort of divided view, especially when it comes to these platforms where you'll find usually more liberal people saying, look, Facebook's a private company. It's not the government. The First Amendment's about censorship. This is misinformation. Then you'll get generally more conservative people saying, well, this is really in spirit. It's our new town square. This is very dangerous. If you decide to remove this information, who's going to decide which information is misinformation, et cetera, et cetera. Did you come into the book with views on that? And did they change? I mean, a lot of reporters used to say, I'm a first amendment absolutist and things like that. How did your views evolve in sort of focusing in on what was happening on Facebook?
3: I do think it was an evolution. And I think that we really had to be more considerate and thoughtful about how we approached our research as well as our arguments. We just read a lot during that time. We discussed a lot sort of the themes, but we were guided. And very importantly, we were guided by the characters and their thinking on it. So it's not like it took a lot for us in terms of the conclusions that we had to come to. It was reporting on how Mark Zuckerberg thought about speech. That was the most important thing because, you know, as you know, in the book, he was making the most the most important decisions and those decisions were evolving and he was in many ways vacillating in his ideas about speech as well. So it was actually through the process of writing the book where we decided that speech was going to become such a big theme. In fact, we started out thinking that a lot of it would be about security and conventional sort of inauthentic. Interference, you know, with that kind of speech, with, the, you know, sort of like IRA backed speech, as well as data privacy problems. And then we thought antitrust was going to be a big thing too, and it is. But now it seems like speech will be the lasting problems for the company going forward. So I'll speak for myself. I think this has been a process where I've educated myself as well through this process and, and understanding where I stand, but also more importantly, trying to show our readers why the company's decisions on speech and policy are so consequential and how a lot of that stems to the philosophies and ideas of Mark Zuckerberg.
2: So do you try to keep where you stand on that issue out of your reporting or to frame your reporting in a way that people understand that you have a certain place that you stand on on those issues?
3: Go ahead. I mean I think we're neutral, but go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we
4: genuinely are neutral. I think we both think it's complicated. And there's a quote in our book that comes from Rene DiResta, who I think is one of the smartest thinkers on this. And um, it's a very apt quote, now been adapted by other people, including Sasha Baron Cohen, which is that freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. And I think just as reporters who look at misinformation constantly, that's where we fall, which is that people get fixated on this idea of speech and particular items that get removed by Facebook or not get removed by Facebook. And it just feels like they're missing the forest for the trees here. That is a very long battle that will probably last our lives. What counts as misinformation? What should people be able to say and not say? Is a particular piece of information the equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded theater? Like That is all stuff that we're going to continue to litigate for the rest of our lives. What should, in my mind, at least be clearer is whether or not those things should be amplified. Whether or not someone who is spreading COVID vaccine misinformation in the middle of a pandemic should have Facebook recommending people join his page or his group, and whether that person should have their posts amplified and put at the top of the newsfeed or at the top of your Instagram, that to me is a much clearer issue. Your right to say something is separate from Facebook's need to amplify things because they're emotive. And what we know about This misinformation. What we know about hate speech, misinformation, conspiracy theories is that they're very emotive. And so Facebook's algorithms really like them. It gets you engaged. And that's great for Facebook as a business. And so, yeah, I just think there are two separate things happening here. And I wish as a reporter that there was more discussion on what's from the outside sounds very boring, right? Algorithms, amplification, but actually is super important. Mm -hmm. And um, the way I frame this for people is that a couple of weeks ago when I was writing a story about vaccine misinformation, I joined a group for natural health cures for the common cold, just to see what would happen. The next group I was recommended to join was one of vaccine misinformation. That is still something that happens every day on Facebook's platform. They say they don't want to do it. They say they want to fix it. But report after report, study after study has shown that Facebook pushes people into anti-vaccine groups. And I just think that that is something very clear that people should be discussing as problematic.
2: Mm And did you come out of these years, as you say, it's ongoing, but these years of reporting, trying to understand the people making these decisions, especially at the top, and think these questions are just really hard, or there's another set of people that could have grown this company to have 3 billion people who could have dealt with this in a different way?
3: Yeah. I mean, some of these problems are present at other companies as well, the amplification problems. But What's unique at Facebook and what we were surprised to discover in our reporting was just how much of this comes back to Mark Zuckerberg and his control and his power at the company. So, yes, there's something uniquely structurally problematic at Facebook, and that is that Mark has 60 percent of the majority voting shares. And that's why he's. Able to make all the decisions when it comes to whether Nancy Pelosi's, you know, the doctor video of her appearing intoxicated should, you know, stay up or down, whether Trump's videos suggesting that people drink bleach or take UV lighting to cure COVID, like all these things, like Mark is making those, Mark Zuckerberg was making those decisions. And what we thought was really uniquely different and important to understand about Facebook because the story of Facebook is these patterns. And this is why we have on the back of our book, you know, this. These quotes, you know, the blurbs of like, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we'll do better, I'll do better," because like we we came with that animating question and to this book project, which is, what in the world is really happening at Facebook? Why is it that we see these patterns over and over again? And one conclusion, one of many, is because it's just Mark's company.
4: I was struck by one part of your question, which is, are there leaders that could have grown it to over three billion people? And I think the answer is that there are leaders that could have grown it, but they wouldn't have gotten to three billion over three billion people as fast as Mark Zuckerberg did. And I think that's the key here is that he focused on growth at the expense of many other things. And when you scale a company as quickly as he did, including to parts of the world with very different societies, very different government systems, very different internal rules about free speech. And when you use your American company and you just export that technology into other parts of the world without a group of people around you saying, hey, slow down, Let's think about whether Myanmar is ready for a social media company. Mm -hmm. Hey, slow down. Maybe we should be introducing media literacy in some of these countries. We have enough money to hire content moderators in these countries. We have enough money to maybe run media literacy programs. Like that group of people didn't exist around Mark Zuckerberg. And I do wonder if a different leader would have made sure that those pessimists in a way were in place around him. And things may have turned out differently. That being said... What I'm suggesting may have meant that Mark Zuckerberg didn't grow the largest social media company in the world. It may have meant somebody else beat him to it. Or maybe there'd be a number of companies in competition right now running social media platforms all over the world. I'm not sure how that would have gone. I think the security and privacy folks out there would argue that that would have been a more responsible way to grow social media. Mm
2: -hmm. I mean, the book's been very successful and it's gotten a lot of attention, rightfully so. In your own paper, the reviewer described it as a takedown, like the ultimate takedown of Facebook, which I would guess you might quibble with a little bit like investigative reporters don't like that loaded term necessarily but one of the ironies in reading that for me is like it's you can't take down Facebook like it doesn't Mm -hmm. in some ways it seems like it doesn't matter that these things happen over and over again like the growth continues and every time someone's like kids don't use Facebook anymore it keeps growing like and I'm wondering how you feel about that vis-a-vis your goals for putting this reporting out there
4: Yeah, I mean, Cecilia, right? I don't think we wrote this thinking that many people were going to read it and delete Facebook or stop using WhatsApp and Instagram. That wasn't a goal. Our goal was to educate people about what this company did, how it worked, why misinformation, hate speech, why all these problems were happening. The analogy we often use is sugar. You can tell people sugar is bad for them and rots their teeth, but most people aren't going to give up sugar in their life, right? They're just going to moderate it. They're going to understand that a lot of it's not good for them and that you know inherently there's something that they crave about it because it it does create some good things right facebook creates good nice connections to friends and family sugar makes delicious treats you just you just know what you're getting into it when you get into it
3: mm-hmm. we also you know we went in knowing that that would be the dichotomy that we would be exploring the fact that the company and this goes back to the title of the book continues to thrive, even though if you did any public surveys, you know, and there are many, and even their internal surveys show that users do not think that Facebook is good for the world. That's actually one of their their surveys, the GFW um, survey that they have. And so we put that in the epilogue. We sort of close on the scene where we land on one of their earnings calls at the beginning of 2021, where Mark Zuckerberg explains, we're going to try to actually slow down the spread of political news. It's just not a priority. We want to tap the brakes a little bit. So he's, again, vacillating on his position when it comes to speech and the kind of content that he wants on the site. And then Sheryl Sandberg, right afterward, says, this has been the best quarter we've had in you know many, many years, that kind of a thing. And it continues to grow and grow and grow. We really hope that people take away a real understanding of the business. What kind of a business is it? This is an advertising company. This is a company that is growing so quickly because of all the technology that amplifies content that gets you to engage more. This is a company that's about agita, to try to get you agitated and to stay on the site longer. And that's how they profit. And I think when you start to really think about that, we hope that not just users, but regulators, lawmakers understand Facebook's very powerful role right now in society. And I do think that right now it looks like there's nothing standing in the way. We both absolutely believe that any change would have to come externally. It'd have to be sort of regulatory pressure or it'd have to be maybe even another business. There are some external forces at play that could have an effect on the company. And if history is a guide, every major communications platform is eventually regulated or broken up. So it feels sort of inevitable. We feel like the Facebook story is just beginning and we've caught a window of it, a window of, of real, tension and controversy, but there's so much more to come.
2: Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
3: Thanks so much, Evan. Thank you.
2: That's it for this week's show. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Big thanks to Shira and Cecilia for coming on the show. The book is called An Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination. You can get it everywhere. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. The editor this week is Gabriela Saldivia. Our intern is Julianne Sato-Parker. And a big thanks to MailChimp, as always. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.